We're going to continue looking. You know, at Easter, it's tempting to do a nice little homily, kind of a nice, a lot of stories and, and, and sweet things, to, and then finish big on the, on the resurrection of the Lord. But today, I want us to spend a lot of time in the text. We're going to finish up our study of the book of Luke by looking at Luke's description of the Easter story. Because I, I think you'll be much better off if you hear directly what the Word of God has to say about these events. We're going to look at the last three chapters of Luke, Luke and Luke. We're going to look at the first, last two chapters of Luke. And, 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 and a, as, as we do that, it's my prayer that you walk away with a whole new appreciation of what God has to say to us with that. So if you have a Bible and would like to, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I believe that the gospel writers have very clear intentions of how they structured, and Luke in particular does. He is very intentional in the way he divides the book to make points, and I hope that you'll see this. In the first chapter, I mean, excuse me, the first paragraph, on one level, he's simply beginning the story, but on another level, he's communicating something about what's going on in the story. Verse 1, now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. And he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Luke wants us to know that there is a conspiracy afoot. You know that conspiracy theories are not new. They have always been going on. I remember the first one I heard when I was at that great citadel of Christian education, the University of Texas, and, and heard repeatedly about conspiracies of the Illuminati and all different groups and all the bad things were going to happen. And I finally came to the conclusion, on one level, they're all true. According to Scripture, there is a conspiracy, and it's been going since the beginning of time. It is a conspiracy of Satan to undo all of the good that God brought. God offers shalom, peace, wholeness, health. Satan always brings destruction, alienation, hurt, and hate. There's always a conspiracy. And Luke wants us to know that in the context of the last days of Jesus' life, there's a conspiracy afoot as well. There are leaders in the community who are supposed to be standing for what is righteous and good, but instead are using their positions of power to do evil. But even more disheartening is verse 3. Satan entered Jesus. Luke wants us to know that the conspiracy is not merely a human battle over power. It is, in fact, a spiritual battle, and the head of the opposition is that great evil one, Satan, Diabolos, the devil, the accuser, the evil one. According to the word of Scripture, there has, from the beginning of time, been one who is constantly seeking to overcome the work of God. And the only reason he's not able to do more damage, according to Scripture, is because God holds him back as a function of his grace. When humankind first sinned, sin entered into the hearts of humans, and we fell away from what God had designed. And God allows us to a point, but he keeps us from destroying ourselves until the last days when according to the book of Scripture, he will allow the evil to go unchecked. And in the context of Jesus' life, Satan is there whispering in the ear of Judas, who was so trusted by the other 12, they made him treasurer. And according to Scripture, even at the last table, when they sat around and Jesus announced that one would betray him, not a single one of them suspected him. Instead, they said, could it be me? This is a cosmic event. It's not a battle of humans. This is a battle of the greatest forces in all of the universe. A good God 
and an evil adversary. And we are naive when we underestimate the opposition because there's no limit to what he'll do. The next paragraph gives Luke's counter to that. On one level, it looks like a simple little detail of what's going on, but on another level, it is Luke's way of balancing the fear that could come from the reality of Satan. Notice what he says, verse 13, in the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, and Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go ahead and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. Notice what he says. As you enter the city, there'll be a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owners of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room, all furnished, and make preparations there. And they left the fa- and found the things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. What's he want us to see here? Satan is at work, but Jesus is in control. Satan is at work, but Jesus is in control. He is managing the details of the last moments of his life. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Jesus only dies because it's his will. And, and one of the mistakes that Christians can do is get so absorbed in our fear of Satan that it petrifies us. And we, we get to worrying about Satan. And Scripture never says us to do that. What does it tell us to do? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let him take care of Satan. Just flee him when he comes. So these first two paragraphs want us to see that there is this grand scheme, this grand uh, attempt to undo the plan of God. But in spite of that, Jesus is still in control. But it is the Passover, verse 14. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after he took the cup, one of the early cups in the Passover, he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And so he took the bread, unleavened bread. Unleavened because at the time of the exodus, the nation of Israel did not have time to wait for the yeast to work. But also unleavened because just as Jesus is sinless, the bread had to be without yeast, which is used in Scripture as a symbol of sin. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he gives thanks for it and says to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you'll take the cup and peel back the foil. Jesus said, this is my body. Take and eat. This table is for any believers. It's not Grace Bible Church's table. If you trust Christ as your Savior, welcome to join us. Verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. I believe there were four cups by this time. It appears originally the Passover meal was the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed and eaten in the Passover meal, but its blood was put on the doorpost and the gatepost to avoid the angel of death from taking the life of the firstborn of the Jewish families. That sounds harsh, but it was the last of ten plagues which were used to force Egypt to let God's people go. And Jesus, as the new Passover lamb, takes the third cup, I believe, the cup of redemption. The the wine cups were added to the meal later on, and he took the third cup, which is still taken in a Passover meal, and he threw him a curve because he said, this is my blood. In, In Scripture, the life is in the blood. This this represents my life, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. 
He said, this is a cup in the new covenant of my blood. As we look through these passages, I'm not one for alliteration. I, I flunked that pass in seminary. But I, I want you to notice that as we walk through this, there are three themes that keep coming up. The first one is food. The Passover meal is a celebration of God's deliverance of the nation of Israel at the time of the Exodus. But Jesus then takes the Passover meal and makes it a significant aspect of Christianity when he says it represents my death on your behalf. But one thing you'll also notice is Jesus says you will one day have another meal with me in the future. Food is predominant in these last days of his life and we'll show you again. The other thing we'll see, though, is failure. In spite of the fact that Jesus is nearing the end of a career that has included resurrecting people from the dead, feeding 5,000 from a lunch bag, healing blindness, overcoming um, spiritual oppression, in spite of that, the people that were closest to him will constantly fail him throughout these stories. Failure is a major theme. But the point of the story is the last death. That's his forgiveness. And as we read this story together this morning, I hope that you are arrested by the reality of what the Easter story tells. It is a story of fellowship of food. The ultimate point of embracing Christ is that we will eat with him at this table, but ultimately with him in the last days. But it's also a story of our forgiveness, our, our failure. And, and we live in a time when failure is not easily forgiven. But in Jesus, we have forgiveness. And that is the ultimate reason he came.
I've had so many people come up to me and say, this is your last Easter. I am not dead yet. It's just my last Easter doing this, for crying out loud. Unless you all know something I don't. Um, although, once I'm home more, Julie may, I don't know. But uh, I think Luke's description is particularly apropos right now. Because Luke emphasizes the failure of Jesus' primary friends. We live in a day when the failure of others has become absolutely unacceptable to us. It's become a badge of honor in our culture today to be able to make a list of all the people who have offended us. And it goes across the spectrum, all kinds of ways. It has just become an obsession with us to try to outdo each other and our victimization. But it's created a culture that's filled with anger and hatred and ultimately division. Because relationships won't hold up to that kind of scrutiny. The reality is the only way any of us is in any relationship for any amount of time is when there is grace given and forgiveness offered. And as long as we keep a standard of perfection, which of course we can't meet for each other, we will build a society that by definition cannot survive. So on one level, the story of Jesus' death, the story of these last three chapters is the grand scheme of, of the Son of God intruding into the world, intruding into human history in order to give his life for the sins of the world and be resurrected on the third day so that he might offer eternal salvation. That is the biggest idea that has ever been stated in all of human history. But that's not all this story is. It's a story that also illustrates how life can be lived in light of what Jesus did. So as we continue in Luke, I want you to notice the incredible failure that accompanies Jesus in all that he does. Beginning in verse 24. Jesus has predicted his death and told them, I will not eat this meal again with you until we're in eternity. And what, guess what they do? A dispute rose among them as to which one of them would be considered greatest. Jesus, that death thing sounds cute. Go with that. Now, don't you think I'm smarter than you are? I've said inappropriate things at inappropriate times. After all, I'm a guy. But this is world-class inappropriate. Jesus has just borne his heart for men he's sacrificed and lived with for three and a half years. And they ignore it. Show no regard for him and worry about themselves. Why do, why do we struggle with being great? Why is it so important to compare ourselves to other people? Notice at the heart of this is not not character or goodness. The heart of this is comparison. Why do we do that? Because we are intuitively insecure about who we are. We know by definition that our heart yearns for a quality of life, a quality of character, a perfection of the soul that none of us can live up to. We know intuitively that we are broken. So what do we try to do? We try to feel better by showing we're not at least as bad as that guy. And I intentionally did not point at Brian, although <laughs> it was tempting. But by the way, if you didn't watch uh, Friday night service, go online and watch it. The, the services this week have been amazing. Our, our worship team, our music team have done an unbelievable job. This is our 10th service this week. But it has been amazing. To Brian, to James, to the group, unbelievable. Watch it online. It is a demonstration of their love of Jesus. And I hope it's been meaningful to you. Um, we, we compare ourselves to others because... We just want to feel better. What's the problem with that? Brian's not my standard. 
and neither are you. The standard that we all have is the perfection we were, that mankind, humankind was created for and for which our heart longs. And I can say that with authority because that's how we criticize other people. We don't criticize other people for things that we can do that they don't. We criticize other people for the very things that we do, right? Because we know intuitively, we know in the depth of our being that we were made for something better than this. And if you can't watch the news, if you can't look online, if, if, if you can't look around you and not identify with the deep, heartfelt desire, a longing for something better than this, then I'm not sure you're alive. Jesus handpicked the 12 that surrounded him. And yet they, they reflected the brokenness in all of our world. Verse 31, it gets really particular. Oh, first, let me finish this passage. Jesus said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. He had just washed their feet, according to John. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Jerusalem. Did you catch that? Sitting at the Passover meal, he promises another meal in the kingdom. The Revelation 19 fix of the marriage feast of the Lamb when the people of God will be in a banquet like none other. Because a table represents fellowship. A table, we eat with people where there is intimacy. And God, Jesus says to his disciples, this all points to the day that we will be together. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Skipping down, but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you even know me. Speaking of failure, the right-hand guy, the vocal leader, the one with the strongest character, the one who would lead the charge, the one who would whack off an ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the one that we would all choose as the most powerful personality of the group, Jesus turns to him and says, buddy, you're going to fail. And, and Peter shows his frailty because how does he respond? Oh, notice the comparison. These other knuckleheads, they'll fail. You can count on me. Because the, re the reality is that Peter and the disciples represent us all. Peter and the disciples are a perfect description of the brokenness of humanity. That's why the cancel culture is, is ultimately will fail. I always think of the French Revolution. You ever studied the French Revolution? You know what happens when one underclass takes control? They kill the next underclass. It is, as Lucas Rogers said to me one time, a snake that eats its own tail. The reality is that, that when, we, when we make judgment and hate of other people's our MO, when, when we become about calling out the failure of others, we will ultimately be ones that have our own failure called out. Now hear me, I am not saying there aren't injustices that need to be dealt with on all ends of the political life and all ends of our society. That is not my point. We should always seek to bring goodness and righteousness and justice into the world. But, but it has become a cancer that has spread into all that we do. In fact, there, I saw an article the other day that, that more and more of the authorities don't have to just watch for people that are messing up. They know that we'll tell on each other, like the time of the French Revolution.
The reality is, men and women, as Jesus would say, let him who is out sin cast the first stone. We're all broken. And while we have to speak against unrighteousness and injustice and, and, and the sins of the world, and don't just, can I just say this? I know some of you are thinking, yeah, that other group. I'm not talking about the other group. I'm talking about your group, okay? Because I know how this works. You're right. Tell that other group. Tell that other group. I'm talking to both groups, okay? <laughs> just to be clear. It's ultimately a train wreck. Because if Jesus' closest friend who can fail, can fail him, who am I to claim I won't? Notice how the story continues. Oh, I skipped a phrase just because I wanted to make the point. End of verse 20, 32. Notice what he says. When you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. We're all going to fail. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to bring even shame upon ourselves. But you know what Jesus says? I expect it. You know what I want you to do? Turn your failure into an opportunity to help other people. Our greatest contribution to other people is more often than not out of our own weakness. Our greatest contribution to other people more often than not is from our own brokenness, our own failure. And rather than try to defend our brokenness and claim in our pride we have no fault, we are most powerful when we embrace God's grace, admit our brokenness, and then use that brokenness to come along other people who are broken as well. That's what Jesus says to Peter. So that even when I fail, there's still hope. There's still meaning. But I got to keep going. The next paragraph, verse 39 um, Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives, and on reaching the place, he says, pray that you will not fall into temptation, and then he goes in for the time of his prayer at Gethsemane. Notice what he says in verse 42, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. That's the same cup as the one on the Lord's table. What does that cup represent? Him giving his life. Take this away. In his humanity, Jesus dreaded what he had given himself to do but not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And he went to the disciples and they'd failed him again. While he is sweating drops of blood, they are snoozing on the sidewalk. Verse 52 and following is the description of, Jesus, of Peter's denial and great failure. Then verses 63 and following, we have a series of kangaroo courts led by Herod and Pirate, Pilate, Pirate, Pilate, and the religious leaders of their day. And I want you to notice just a few verses. Uh, Pilate, verse 23, verse 4. Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for a charge against this man. 23, verse 15. Um, Pilate, uh, start in 13, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one inciting people to rebel, and I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. And neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. And he offers him up to be freed, and the crowds cry, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Kangaroo courts. And here the failure is a failure of justice. A failure of justice. Jesus is the perfect man whose life is without blemish. And yet three courts, if you will, come together and take his life. You know, it's funny. Most of us, when we were raising our children, told them, life's not fair. You ever tell your kids that? If you're a kid, have you ever heard your parents say that? If not, you will. I promise. But sometimes we adults won't let go of it either. This life is not fair. Because it's a broken world. 
Uh, we have in ourselves an incredible yearning for what is right and what is just because we were made in the image of one who, who represents that completely. But we will only become frustrated if, if, if we seek to meet that need in the world in which we live. Life isn't fair. And it's ultimately demonstrated when the one who is without sin is unjustly judged by Roman officials, religious leaders, and even the crowd, possibly including some who had celebrated his coming on the triumphal entry, demands that he die. Verse 30, 26. So they led him away and they seized Simon the Cyre, from Cyrene who was on his way in from the country. Someone asked me where Cyrene is. It's in Egypt. Someone asked me is he's Jewish. I don't know. Um, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children, for the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Jesus proclaims judgment that will come on the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, but that will also ultimately come in the last days when God will bring judgment on all of the earth. Verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led with him to be executed. And they came to the place called the skull, and there they crucified him along with the criminals, on his right and on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Even on the cross, Jesus explains why he's here. In the context of blame and condemnation and, frankly, hypocrisy, because anytime we get too caught up in condemnation, we become hypocrites. Jesus declares, hanging from the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And we talked last week of the thief on the cross who placed his, trace, uh, his trust in Jesus. And Jesus says, today you will be in paradise. as an illustration of what that forgiveness looks like. So let's turn to the resurrection in chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, and their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the man just said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Understand that if Jesus were still in that tomb, we wouldn't be here. We, we, there might be a religion that's, that grew out of Judaism that pointed to the teachings of Jesus, and, and we might read books about him, and we might pat ourselves on the back because we could label ourselves his followers, but it is his resurrection that changed the force of human history. Because Jesus went from being an incredible teacher, a man who did great miracles, to demonstrating that he is the Son of God who has victory over death and sin. The Apostle Paul says, if there were no resurrection by Jesus, then we shouldn't even waste our time. We should be out eating nice food and drinking nice wine. The reality is that it is this truth that changed the world because Jesus is the first person in all human history to defeat death. What is the one thing, great equalizer in all of humanity? It's death. We will all die. Barring Jesus' return, we will all die. And no matter how studiously we avoid looking at death, no matter how much we try to hide our eyes from death, the reality is that all of us will die. And part of the panic over COVID is COVID has reminded us as a society how little control we have over that great equalizer that is death. But Jesus 
was raised from the tomb and lives today, according to the Apostle Paul, 500 people together saw him raised. And at the time of the writing of the book of Corinthians, they were there to give testimony to what he did so that Paul is saying, we know that he was raised from the dead and therefore we know he accomplished something no one has ever done. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And it's not just a matter of the fact that he is alive. It's the fact that by being resurrected, he demonstrated that he's successful in providing for our forgiveness. He's successful in removing our shame. He's successful in giving us the ability to stand before a perfect God without fear, without condemnation, because when God looks at those who have placed their faith and hope in what Jesus did on the cross, he doesn't see our brokenness. He sees Jesus' perfection. So the women go, verse 11, the apostles don't believe the women. Once again, a failure of belief. Uh, So Jesus appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus and says, what's the big deal? And they say, how can you not know about what happened in Israel? Verse 19, what things, he said. Well, they said about Jesus of Nazareth. He, He was a prophet. Did you catch that? They failed because they yet did not know who he was. They still thought he was a great teacher. They still thought he was a prophet. And that's what you hear today. Jesus was a great teacher, really good guy. Loved to have a meal with him. As C.S. Lewis said, that's, he's, anyone who says that is naive. He's either a liar because he claimed to be the son of God, a lunatic because he believes the son of God, or he must be Lord. He was certainly not just a prophet, but they failed in their confidence in him because they underestimated who he was. And Jesus goes on to explain to them all that they had seen. Verse 45, uh, 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. And they go and they sit down and have a meal. And in verse 30 and following, it says, when he took the bread, another food, and broke it, then they recognized who he was because it was in the fellowship of food that they both best identified who he was. Verse 45, he goes to the apostles, to the 11. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What, what is the story of these three days? Well, first, it's a story of food. It begins with the celebration of the Passover meal, which is a reflection of the Lord's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery to Egypt, which represents the deliverance that we have from the slavery to sin. And that's why it became another meal, the Lord's Supper, where we together celebrate Jesus' death on our behalf so that we can be delivered from the bondage of sin in our own life. But it looks to another meal, the marriage feast of the Lamb, when we will have a greater banquet of all who have trusted in Him. But it's also a story of failure. Because wherever there are people, there is failure. We're a broken people. At our best, we're a broken people. We are insecure because we know in our heart of hearts we don't live up to the standard that we hold others to. We have shame because of things we've done that we don't other people to know about. We have fear because we're desperately afraid that people might someday look behind the curtain and see just how insecure and broken we are. And we have anger because we're offended by others who live and do things like we live and do to them. And men and women, the the church is a place for failures. 
The very gospel that we hold to is a reminder that we are here because we are failures. And, and we, we come to this gospel not because we're better, but because we know how desperately we need that last thing which Jesus offers, which is the forgiveness which he purchased through his blood on the cross. And the answer to our failure is not condemnation of others. The answer to our failure is not more religious activity. The answer to our failure is to come to the one that offers forgiveness. Because he took upon himself the consequences of our own sin. He died. And by his resurrection, he demonstrates that he had victory over sin and death. And that means that you and I can as well because we will stand before God if we've trusted him and be seen only in his perfection. And in the meantime, God can even use our failures now to serve the world around us. It's Easter. It's a time we celebrate the goodness of God as demonstrated and the power of God as demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. It's Easter. It's a time when the darkness of night is broken by the light of the resurrected Jesus. It's Easter, a time when we're reminded that in all of our failure, God offers grace to us so that it's required of us to offer grace to others. This Easter, commit yourself to a life of grace. Not just receiving the grace. If you've not done that, start by embracing the grace that Jesus offers, the forgiveness he offers through his death on the cross. If you've never done that today, just tell Jesus, I'm broken and I need your forgiveness. And he will offer it by virtue of his death and resurrection. But if you call yourself a child of God, it's a good day. It's a good day to be reminded of the reality of what this message is, and that is a life of grace and brokenness, a life of forgiveness of sin. Accept Jesus' forgiveness for you. Don't, don't live under the weight of all your failures, but offer forgiveness to others. How could we not when we've been forgiven so much? Please pray with me. Father, thank you that your son intruded into life, not only showed us what righteousness looks like, but purchased righteousness for us by virtue of his death and resurrection. Lord, we pray you would forgive us for our tendency to judge others, to criticize others, rather than to offering the grace that we have received. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.